Hi, I'm Annabel Gonzalez, non-resident senior fellow at the Pearson Institute for International Economics, and I am very pleased to welcome you to Tradewinds, our new bi-weekly virtual event series where we will discuss the future of global commerce in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic with leading policymakers and experts from across the world. And if you have been with us before, uh, thank you very much for being back. Uh, I would also like to share with you that the Peterson Institute recently launched another virtual event series, Financial Statements, uh, hosted by my colleague, Nicolas Veron. To complement your trade expertise uh, with an understanding of the changes in the financial world, I highly recommend that you check our website uh, and register for the next episode of our Financial Statements. In our third episode of Trade Wins, we will explore what future for the global trading system, a topic that will very much shape the international trade and investment landscape for the next few years. And to lead our discussion, I am delighted that we have with us two outstanding leaders in international economics and foreign policy, who for many years have advocated and acted to promote a more inclusive and sustainable globalization. Let me first introduce Pascal Lamy, who currently serves as president of the Paris Peace Forum, among many other distinguished occupations. Pascal is former director general of the World Trade Organization from 2005 to 2013, and former trade commissioner of the European Union from 1999 to 2004. Most recently, Pascal is the co-author of a book uh, called Strange New World, Geoeconomics versus Geopolitics, which came out in French and is now available in English. Let me also present uh, Robert B. Selleck, uh, who is a member of our own board at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, among other important responsibilities. Bob is former president of the World Bank, uh, from 2007 to 2012, and former U.S. representative from 2001 to 2005. Bob is the author of a book called American in the World, A History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy, who will be coming out uh, in August. So I wanted to bring uh, Pascal and Bob together to trade wins as they had the unique opportunity to work together in the past and make a real difference. First, while respectively leading the EU and US trade portfolios, and then at the helm of these two very important institutions, the WTO and the World Bank. The world was a lucky place at that time, and we are some lucky fellows at Tradewinds to have them here with us today. So a warm welcome to both of you, and thank you very much for joining us at Tradewinds. So, as usual, uh, Mr. Lamy and Mr. Selig will deliver some initial remarks to frame our conversation, and then we will engage in a dialogue. I am also hoping uh, to take a few questions from the audience, so please get ready to submit them using the Q&A button in the Zoom platform. So let me just say a few words uh, to kick off the discussion. So with trade conflicts, uh, new technologies, and geopolitical competition reshaping the global economy, the trade and investment policy context was rapidly changing before we were struck by COVID-19. While different scenarios were playing out, three features were shaping the trade and investment policy landscape. First, the revival of managed trade against the backdrop of great power rivalry and systemic competition between the US and China. Second, greater fragmentation of trade rules as a flurry of activity leading to new or revised agreements with potential competing spheres of influence took place. And third, the weakening of global governance with the WTO confronting its most fundamental crisis since its coming into force in 1995 and complex issues unresolved such as how to deal with market distorting state intervention in the economy, the governance of digital trade, and the role of larger economic uh, emerging economies. The business environment had become more uncertain and volatile than before, 
and global value chains had begun to readjust to take account of the challenging policy environment. So in this context comes COVID-19 and with it severe disruption to trade and investment uh, and increased challenges for global trade cooperation, paradoxically at a time where that cooperation is needed the most. So let me now turn uh, to Bob uh, and ask you, um, in your view, uh, what did the global trading system look like before uh, the coronavirus came about? And how do these features and dynamics impact the COVID-19 uh, trade environment? So Bob, over to you. Well, thank you, Annabella, and thanks uh, to the Peterson Institute uh, for sponsoring Trade Wins. Excellent, so I appreciate uh, this opportunity. Um, I was going to open with two topics, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, you talked a little bit about changes in the trading system before COVID, and I want to expand on that, with the main point being this is always a dynamic system. So I believe COVID will add to the dynamism of the system, uh, but it's never uh, stays the same. And then second, just a word on some of the consequences uh, of the breakdown. So as for the changes in the trading system, what's striking is if you look at the trade growth from 1990 to 2007, it grew approximately two times the rate of GDP growth. Uh, but from 2008, approximately it falls below GDP growth. However, within those numbers, there are changes. So the services trade grew about 60% faster than the goods trade since 2008. Services, the way it's counted, is about 20% of the total. But if you encounter intercompany transfers, intangibles, digital, it starts to get uh, near half. There are, of course, important regional variations. You're starting to see concentrations in autos, computers, electronics, new patterns, especially in Asia. Of course, much of this has been driven by China where you're moving to increase domestic demand and consumption, growth of internal supply chains in China, increased share of intermediate goods exports, and of course, climbing up the technology ladder. We were also seeing that supply chains became less reliant on the labor cost arbitrage. They were becoming more knowledge intensive, more reliant on higher skilled labor and the vital role of digital platforms. Uh, as you alluded to, there's always technology shifts, for example, 3D printing. So the world of, of trade of the 1990s supply chain was large batches, specialized components assembled over various areas uh, with, with many locations. The world of 3D printing could start to become small batches, customized on site. But we really don't have the data yet. And here I, I want to compliment the Peterson Institute because one of the first studies I've seen was by your colleague, Chad Bone, who looked at uh, hearing aids. And contrary to some of the expectations, uh, the effects of 3D printing actually increased the trade because of the quality and price effects. I think the three prime producing countries, Denmark, Switzerland, and Singapore, if I recall, retained their position. But these are, after all, small items. So I expect we might see differences with 3D printing with some of the larger items. And then the last factor that I'll focus on is one that you touched on, which is the uh, effect of the breakdown in global governance. And here, I think the US has had a particular uh, role. Traditionally, the US pushed for new rules, in part because the US business sector was cutting edge. So whether it was services, intellectual property, uh, e-commerce, uh, data. Um, but the United States policy under Trump has largely abandoned that. As you said, they focus more on the managed trade results. Second topic, uh, does the deconstruction of this system matter? Well, let me mention a few things. First, there's the direct costs, which we saw with export bans on health and, and uh, supplies and food. This means lies, <laughs> that certainly matters. And of course, there's the higher tariffs uh, of costs. Then there's the trade links to investment. Uh, your audience knows that these are really two sides of the same coin. And as part of that, you get the, not only the transfers of capital, but know-how uh, international network connections. Particularly as, as one looks to see 
how we get out of the COVID-19 uh, collapse of economies, you have fiscal and monetary policies, but uh, to really resume growth, one's gonna to have to deal with some of the barriers that uh, countries have put in the system. They will add costs, they'll lower productivity, and they'll lower the potential growth at a time, as you said, that we really wanna to try to achieve inclusive and sustainable growth. I have always emphasized, and I think Pascal has as well, that one should see trade as the foundation for other types of cooperative activities. In an era where people are focusing on whether you call it transnational or global issues, um, the basis of trade and economic cooperation can provide a basis or foundation for working together. And just take the, the current pandemic. I was on a, on a conference last week with a true specialist in this field. He mentioned that each year there's about five major potential viruses that the community watches. Three of them are related to wildlife, which by the way, suggests some concern for illegal wildlife trade. Um, and then two have more of sort of a, a connection to sort of bacteria breakdowns. Um, so as we think not only about the coronavirus, but we think about biological security, and I would add biotech, as we think about scientific and medical cooperation, energy and the environment, transport security and terrorism, even the related issue of immigration, it's hard to conceive of making much progress if you can't have some of the economic fundamentals work. And then, uh, as you know, uh, trade can be used as a development tool. There's the obvious example of export-led growth, but I think trade plays a role far beyond that. Trade can contribute to more open societies, rule of law, competition, push for higher standards. Uh, uh, you are, I have a particular uh, familiarity of this from our work with Costa Rica, where part of the point on trade was to help open the telecommunications and insurance system as part of a development strategy. And sometimes trade can be used by reformist governments to justify to their public changes that are otherwise politically difficult to make. And then of course, uh, there's the problem of if, if one doesn't act on trade and economic development, the issues of globalization such as immigration won't go away. So if the European Union is unable to help get development in Sub-Saharan Africa, well then expect people to move. And we've seen the evidence of that as well. And here I draw an analogy to something your financial sector colleagues might point to. In financial markets, now and then central banks or regulators will try to sort of limit volatility in one asset class. But the volatility doesn't go away. The volatility just moves to a different asset class, as again, as we may be seeing in the difference between bond markets and equity markets these days. Well, similarly in the trade field, if you try to stymie uh, the movement in trade, you have to expect that it's going to burst out in some other area. So just to conclude, I think one of the biggest challenges is that clearly we're in a process where there have to be changes in terms of stockpiles, resilience of supply chains, a whole series of other issues. But the question will be, is the guiding issue adaptation or is it autarky? And I think that will be the issue governments will be facing over the next years. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Bob, for those, uh, for those uh, excellent uh, remarks. You touch upon uh, so many points, and uh, you certainly reminded us when we negotiated uh, the CAFTA agreement and, uh, and really all the developmental benefits that, uh, in this case, Costa Rica has, um, has actually taken up of this, uh, of this negotiation. Uh, so a very strong point about trade being a developmental tool. Um, now, um, uh, Bob uh, referred to a number of changes that are happening in the, uh, in the, in the world economy as we speak. Uh, some of them COVID-related, other uh, non-COVID-related. So, uh, Pascal, let me, let me bring you in now and ask you, do you think uh, the global trading system can survive uh, so many and so sometimes so, so intense uh, changes, COVID and non-COVID uh, related? Thanks, Anadel. Well, um, I'll answer your question in a sort of a qualified way. Uh, I think we should have a vibrant, uh, disciplined uh, world trading system for many of the reasons which Bob just gave, which is the benefits of trade opening who accrue 
under a number of conditions which are not always there, but which should be there. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, this is uh, going to happen. Uh, and I think those of us who favor open trade have to brace uh, for a few very difficult years uh, because this uh, COVID crisis, uh, A, came on top of pre-existing uh, trade fragmentations, which you and Bob mentioned. But I think uh, the occurrence of the crisis, the way it was handled and the impact it would have had uh, will uh, generate new challenges. And let me uh, uh, mention them. Uh, I think I have five of them in mind. Uh, first is uh, state aids. Second is what I call precautionism. Uh, third uh, is uh, what has already mentioned, uh, but which will increase, which is the weaponization of trade. Uh, the fourth is stemming from this big conversation on reshoring. And the fifth is with, I think, new forms of uh, more classical protectionism. Uh, starting with state aid, there's no way sovereigns injecting 15 billion trillions of public money and central bank in the economy will not have huge trade distorting effects. I think you don't need to be a seasoned economist to understand why. Uh, this will totally unlevel uh, the, the playing field uh, for a number of uh, multinational uh, companies and competitors uh, who will be uh, more or less backed by states, nationalized, subsidized, driven with various legitimate conditionalities on uh, spending so much public money. So a world of trade which will be very distorted by all this public funding. Uh, second, what I call precautionism. Uh, uh, Bob knows my view, which I've had for some time on this. I used to distinguish protectionism, which is protecting your producers from domestic competition, from what I call precautionism, uh, which is protecting your people from risks. And these are two very different ball games, although both of them can translate into uh, obstacle to trade. The problem being that obstacle to trade stemming from protectionism are relatively easy to deal with, provided you have the necessary political authority. Whereas obstacle to trade stemming from the discrepancies in measures with which you protect your people is much more complex. And let me just give you one example I'm working on as chair of the World of Tourism Ethics Committee. Uh, the big thing, as we know, is try to reopen tourism, which is the part of the world economy which has been bombshell. Great. Now, to do that, you need to inject some sort of COVID-free labels, agreement, certification, passport, whatever. You have to show that the people you import for touristic purposes are not bringing COVID. Good. The problem being that this is being done in a totally scattered way. You have an agreement cooking between New Zealand and Australia. You have one cooking between China and Thailand. You have one probably cooking between uh, Brazil and Argentina. And these things are in a totally different frame because what is a COVID-free tourist has no global definition. And the time it would take to have a global definition will take years. This inevitably will slow the recovery of the major part of world trade, uh, which is uh, tourism. Weaponization of trade, uh, Bob mentioned it. Uh, this is not, by the way, only a US uh, specialization, although uh, very much in fashion uh, since Trump was elected. We've had an episode, which some of you may remember, between uh, Korea and Japan last week, uh, last year, which was about export restrictions, which were totally politically uh, motivated. Reshoring uh, on this, uh, I don't need to expand on this big conversation uh, to which the Peterson Institute, as usual, with good numbers and good people is uh, contributing. Uh, 
although I believe there'll be much more bark than bite on uh, reshoring, reconfiguration of supply chains, renationalization, repatriation, whatever, there will be some impact of that on investment flows and on trade flows. Uh, and finally, new forms of uh, protectionism, uh, mostly, mostly uh, under uh, the form of investment control, uh, protecting some companies uh, from uh, foreign takeovers, for instance, or even new instruments to fight against uh, hyper-subsidization, such as the one the European Union uh, has just announced this week, and which go in this direction. So, big challenges on the one side. On the other side, a lower capacity to address these big challenges for reasons Bob mentioned uh, and for reasons the COVID crisis has formidably increased the fragmentation of this planet. It has increased it east-west. The US-China relationship is worse than it was before the crisis because both countries have had problems uh, coping with the crisis and have engaged on a sort of narrative war uh, which has geopolitical and geoeconomic consequences. Uh, and the fact that the COVID crisis will have disproportionately hit developing countries will increase a north-south divide, which in economic terms was already there. So a more fragmented, more divided world with basically more tensions and less trust. And this makes coping with the challenges I mentioned, even a higher call than otherwise. Uh, to conclude, uh, one or two uh, policy recommendations, because it's all fine to try and detect what's going to happen and the challenges we have. Uh, I think in uh, policy terms, and I will only focus on the sort of WTO agenda, which is a sort of good resume of where problems uh, can be solved. Uh, I would advise uh, for a sort of two-stage plan for reinstalling some sort of level playing field uh, in, uh, in trade relations. One would be short-term, a sort of a cooling down period, a period where a coalition of WTO members would engage in restabilizing the game, stop destabilizing it, which is already uh, something. Uh, and I think uh, this probably will take uh, a few years uh, so that uh, the system gets a bit of trust. Uh, and I would advise uh, to do that, uh, what I call co-op, which is a coalition for open trade made of major players in trade, uh, probably, probably led uh, by the European Union, uh, depending on uh, the result of the uh, US uh, election. And I don't think I need to expand on that. Then, then, after this period, we would have to go back to coping with big challenges which are there. One which is already mentioned, which is uh, the problem of coexistence with China. As long as China keeps a state-owned sector roughly at 30% of its uh, economy, we have a problem competing uh, with uh, such an animal. And the fact that in terms of the part of the economy which is under state control, we probably have moved from 5% to 10%. Doesn't change the fact that the distance between the 10% and the Chinese 30% remains too big. And this necessitates global rules on state aids and we know the WTO disciplines uh, for the moment are extremely shallow, uh, if not uh, weak. Then you have the problems around the trade and environment nexus. The environment as part of the international agenda is higher and higher. And I think the COVID crisis, notably for reasons Bob mentioned, uh, will make it even higher. And there is an issue of articulation between trade and environment. The conditions under which the European Union will put together its border carbon adjustment, and I just uh, published a piece on that on the uh, Europe Jacques Delors uh, in, uh, in Brussels, 
are need serious precautions in order uh, to keep a system which is WTO compatible. Uh, and I think around precaution, we will need a new effort to level the playing field in areas which are precaution related. And this probably would need some sort of institutional arrangement. I mean, I'm thinking, although it's still pretty unclear on my mind, but there's something like a bit like what we have in finance. We have a sort of prudential global system. And I think we should have a sort of prudential global system as far as health, for instance, is concerned, at least for humans and animals. So there's plenty to do. These issues will have to be tackled. I think short term, we will need a period where we take stock of where we are. We decide uh, to uh, stop modeling the, the water. Uh, and this short term period is the one that should start now. You have to unmute, you have to unmute. Um, yes. yes, thank you very much, uh, Pascal. Uh, also wonderful comments. I am afraid uh, that if we were to tackle all these different aspects that you both have brought to the table, you should be regulars on trade winds with me for the next three or four months. Uh, so uh, let me just say that, um, let, me, let me just go back to one topic, which I think very much underlies uh, all of the confrontations and makes, of course, this very difficult, which is the power rivalry and the systemic competition between the US uh, and China. Um, and ask you, do you think that in light of these circumstances, is it possible to revitalize trade collaboration among the key players? Because I think you both have made a very strong uh, case uh, you know, and the need for this uh, cooperation among, uh, among players in the global economy. But is it possible to keep the U.S. under the WTO tent uh, and at the same time bring China more into that uh, tent? Uh, and I also like to ask you, and uh, Pascal alluded a bit to this, so what role for the European Union in uh, supporting the global trading system when it is somehow caught uh, in the crossfire between the US uh, and China. So uh, Bob, you'd like to uh, start and comment on this? Well, let me comment a little bit on the US and China and we can come back to the WTO if you'd like. Uh, the US and China obviously is a pretty big topic on its own and I don't wanna monopolize all the time. Um, I, I think it's useful to, to start with a little bit of an assessment of of where we stand. Uh, my view is that after uh, three years of tariffs and confrontation, uh, President Trump negotiated his phase one trade deal. Uh, as you alluded to, it's primarily a managed trade deal, uh, trying to have uh, purchases as opposed to think about rules. I believe the targets were unrealistic from the start. Uh, now they're fantasy. Uh, again, to cite some good work for your colleague, uh, Chad, uh, he produces something, I think, every couple of weeks, and these the data that I recall are the, the targets are, it's about 40%, 40% plus of kind of what uh, they should be. Yeah. Also important to note, about a 25 to 30% of, of U.S.-China trade isn't covered by the deal, and as you would expect in managed trade, those numbers uh, actually uh, collapse. And of course, the tariffs are still largely in place. On the U.S. side, um, I would expect more export controls. Um, I think we may see a contest here of mutual entity lists. Um, there'll be limits on visas, investment, students. Uh, there's a separate issue related to Hong Kong. Um, in particular, I would focus on the Department of Commerce regulations that with some of your viewers may not have gotten as much attention, focused on Huawei and the telecom decoupling. And the key issue here is not only semiconductors, but the extraterritoriality of limiting ability to use tools to even make semiconductors. This is a big, big, big step. Um, I think on the Chinese side, um, as always, they will pursue their interests in a calculating fashion. Uh, I refer to this as globalization with Chinese characteristics. What that means is it'll be in their interest to buy some agricultural products. 
they won't want to crash the appearance of the of the phase one deal. So you see some of these purchases, particularly into the elections in areas like asset management and pension market reforms. There'll be opportunities for for foreign firms, um, but you will see more internal supply chains. And you're seeing a debate within China. I, I'm not a Mandarin speaker, but from some of the uh, articles I've seen of people who are about interdependence and self-sufficiency. And this is a, a, and because I think the big picture Chinese conclusion of U.S. behavior is, regardless of whether it's Trump or somebody else, the U.S. doesn't want to accept China's rise. And so that's a very big strategic uh, conclusion. Um, however, if you look at the most recent statements coming out of the Consultative Congress and others by the Premier, they continue to have the outward orientation. They talk about free trade agreements with Japan and Korea. There's the, the RCEP agreement. Um, there's Belt and Road. Um, and there's even some kind words about the sort of revised TPP. Now, you asked, are there alternatives? There are alternatives. We're not taking them. Um, but they really do require moving into the particulars of each of the problems, a number of which Pascal uh, mentioned. So there's the traditional agenda we could loosely call reciprocity, trade barriers, intellectual property rights, forced technology transfer, joint ventures, investment. Um, actually, there have been improvements in this area, and I think you could get actually other significant improvements in this area, particularly if the U.S. works with other countries and works with people within China that realize some of these changes in their then there's the broader issue of state capitalism and state-owned enterprises, as Pascal mentioned. Um, there have been examples of efforts to try to discipline these. You'll see them in the U.S.-Singapore free trade agreement. You'll see them, obviously, the European Union experience with this. Um, so there could be an agenda in that area. Um, the, the most, I think, uh, dangerous area is the technology competition. And here, I think you will see uh, decoupling in part in the telecommunications security area. But if, if security is seen as encompassing every type of data, then we're gonna have a really tremendous effect, say the life sciences area. Uh, and because I don't know a sector in innovation that doesn't rely on sort of data issues. Then there's separate issues of foreign policy and security and separate issues of countries that have views on freedom, uh, whether it's Taiwan or, or rule of law in Hong Kong or Uyghurs or sort of other issues. But my point is that you'll never make progress on that sort of agenda just by raising tariffs. And you won't make progress uh, just by saying this is unfair. You have to dig into the details as frankly, you know, trade negotiators did among other countries before. Um, that is not the pattern that is going on today. So uh, if, if there's a change in government, would there be an opportunity in the U.S.? There would be, but I don't want to mislead people because at least at this point, the Democratic Party doesn't want to look soft on China. Um, as Pascal knows, many members of Congress on the Democratic side will tend to be more protectionist in their orientation anyway. Um, there, you do see different attitudes in polls and perhaps younger generation. So while well, close on this, is that I actually think for Europeans, Australians, Canadians, Japanese, Mexicans, and others, there, there could be an opportunity here if, if Biden's elected to try to work on an agenda that meets his needs for being more multilateral with all the fuzziness and be more effective with China. I do think, as Pascal suggested, a key element of that will have to be the environmental point. And we can talk about this more, but I think... Um, the, the carbon border tax issue is going to rise in prominence. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Bob. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'll come back to one of the points that you made. But I want to hear from uh, Pascal first on, uh, on this point between the U.S. and China, but also on the role of the, of the EU. Uh, Pascal? Well, I think uh, it's the two faces of the same coin. Uh, and when you said, Annabelle, uh, a moment ago, that how, you can, how can you keep the U.S. in the tent and bring China more into the tent? Uh, this is uh, a perfect definition of the strategy uh, the EU has been deploying uh, since uh, Trump started to become really damaging, i.e. roughly uh, three years ago. Uh, that's been uh, the sort of strategic uh, axis of the EU 
uh, trade uh, uh, influence in this planet. As we all know, this is probably the only area where EU uh, is one and can have a reasonably clear and strong strategy uh, because uh, there is a big uh, sort of coherence in EU collective preferences as far as trade is concerned. Uh, and I think uh, this will remain true in the future. And the more the US-China uh, tension increases, the more the EU will want to step in in order to stabilize uh, the global trading system. And by the way, a large number of WTO members uh, wish the EU to be uh, the sort of shield under which they can move in order themselves not to be obliged uh, to take sides, at least trade-wise, uh, between uh, US and China. Uh, so I think there is a big role for the EU in that, which is why, depending on whether the EU will emerge from this COVID crisis stronger or weaker, this will have consequences on trade. I've been hesitant on the answer uh, for uh, quite a, a large number of weeks since the beginning of the crisis. I think now, given what happened uh, with the Franco-German uh, proposal and the big uh, recovery uh, bazooka which the Commission has proposed, uh, which is a, a sort of, if not a totally Hamiltonian moment, at least a moment where the Germans accept that the uh, EU as such uh, emits uh, bonds, uh, whether they are Euro, uh, Ursula or Green uh, on the international market. I think we now are moving on the right side, although still quite a way to go, which is in a way for those who believe the EU should play the stabilizer role, uh, rather good news. And we've had a, a recent example of that in the way the EU led this coalition that agreed uh, on this patch, on the appellate body uh, procedures. As you know, the US had taken the appellate body hostage in refusing uh, to nominate new judges uh, without entering into a discussion of whether judges in a uh, dispute settlement should be agreed by consensus, which I think the statutes of WTO do not provide for, but let's leave that aside. This is a question for specialists, but I think the way the EU looked into the issue, looked into the various legal options, tested this coalition with a number of WTO members, and then outlined it, put it on the table, and got support is a good example of one actor taking an initiative to the benefit of the system. Uh, true, it's uh, only a provisional patch because the US are not part of that, and that's totally regrettable. But better have a WTO without the US than no WTO at all, at least as far as dispute, the dispute settlement system is concerned. So I hope, not sure, but I hope that the EU will uh, play this role and increase its capacity to stabilize it. And there's one fundamental reason for that on top of geopolitics and geoeconomics. The fundamental reason remains that EU is more trade dependent than the others. If you compare the intrinsic domestic generated rate of growth of the EU economy and the others, US and China, you will realize that the intrinsic growth potential of the European Union is low. If you want to boost whatever sort of growth in the European Union, you need to address foreign-driven demand. You need open markets. And you do not get open markets if you do not open your market. So there is one fundamental structural reason, which is this negative growth differential between the EU self-generated growth capacity and the rest of the world, which inevitably puts the EU on a more trade-open course. Mm -hmm. Uh, you said something very interesting, Pascal, which is better WTO without the US than no WTO uh, at all. 
so I want to bring Bob on this because I want to hear your views uh, on the WTO. We have a number of questions uh, from our audience who are also bringing in uh, some points on the WTO in particular, what future for the WTO. And since we are in the process of, um, since the selection of the next director general has already been launched, I also would like to hear from you, Bob, uh, what should be the priorities for this uh, new director general uh, when, uh, when he or she comes into office? So first, on, on the types of issues that need to be, the structural issues addressed in the WTO, um, I'm gonna give you an extensive list without the idea that they're all gonna could be uh, resolved at once, but I think Part of policy progress is to go step by step and and have success build on success. Uh, there's been an issue brewing since Pascal was trade commissioner and I was uh, uh, USTR, which is the ability to go beyond MFN treatment for those willing to liberalize. Um, I do think you want to keep a basic MFN structure for some tariffs and others, but with I believe 164 economies now, if one could hold it up, it just, you, you, you will see the negotiations move elsewhere. Uh, and uh, sometimes I believe that bilateral and regional agreements could set useful precedents and others, but I would still prefer to have them done among coalitions of the willing in the WTO. Plurilaterals, uh, so, uh, uh, Bob? Yeah, you define them in different ways, but I, these would be uh, subject matter categories uh, so that, that where you could have advances. Um, then I do think after 60 or 70 years where industrialized or more developed countries like the US, <coughs> European Union lowered tariffs early on, in political, you have a need for some safety valves. Um, I, I had tried in 2001 and 2002 to use the safeguard mechanism as opposed to the anti-dumping countervailing duty suits. Uh, I failed miserably uh, and was attacked even by free trade people who should have understood there was a better alternative. <laughs> but, uh, but something like that will have to be found again, uh, just because to manage the politics of this. Um, then there's the issue that Pascal and I have mentioned about state capitalism and state-owned enterprises. Um, then there's the, again, the issue we dealt with about special and differential treatment. And again, in you know 2001 through four, when Pascal and I were working on this, you know, it's one thing to give special treatment to sub-Saharan African countries that have special needs. Um, you know, it's a little hard to sell it to developed country publics and, and political systems when you have highly uh, competitive economies, whether it be South Korea or uh, uh, or China or even certain areas, you know, India and Brazil. You can imagine doing this in stages and other aspects, but this would be an issue that would have to be adjusted. Um, exchange rates, and uh, actually the Peterson Institute with Fred Bergsten did some good work on this. I mean, it's in the in the GATT original charter, it's in the IMF, it's never been addressed. I think there's a ways to address it. And then there's the tricky issue of dispute settlement appellate body. Um, and Pascal touched on this. And, and this is an issue you actually get when in different legal systems within countries, which is kind of, what's the interpretive reach uh, for ambiguous provisions? Um, and in the WTO context, the question would be, if it's not clear, do you allow the national authority to control or do you interpret? Um, and obviously this, this brings you right back to the anti-dumping sort of duty issue. Then uh, we both mentioned the integration of the environmental issue, particularly the sort of carbon sort of border tax. Those are big issues. And so that, <laughs> that, that goes to your really question about uh, the, the next director general. Um, I think this is gonna be an extremely difficult job. Um, probably uh, the person, if they can agree on one, uh, will be the person who's alienated uh, the fewest parties, um, particularly the US and China. That may or not be the person uh, who's best designed to move the agenda ahead. And I think, uh, the, the person needs to combine two issues, and Pascal touched on this. One, I'll refer to uh, stabilization, stopping the sort of decline, or I would add to it smaller gains, but also uh, a long-term vision. So 
to use colloquial American English, you, you need some points on the board here. You need some successes to sort of start to rebuild some momentum. Um, I have always believed, uh, I never served in Geneva as Pascal did, uh, that the status quo mindset of the Geneva ambassadors will doom this. So the last person I would pick would be somebody who just sort of came out of that environment because they'll just replicate what's been done before. Um, I think uh, that at the start, if I had the job, I would try to fix some problems where I thought I could bring people together. So just to give you an example, when during the global financial crisis, Pascal at the WTO and I at the World Bank noticed that the banking regulators in their effort to rebuild capital uh, were about ready to cut off trade finance, particularly to many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. So we made an effort because we had ties to that with the BIS and others to sort of loosen some of the standards that would have had a very negative effect. You're seeing some problems with trade finance in some economies now as well. So you know a new WTO DG could work on making some uh, effort on that. You could make some progress on export bans. Again, Pascal and I tried to deal with some of the food bans, food prices. It's a it's a it's a retail micro effort, but you could make some progress. Um, you could deal with barriers that probably many could agree with. For example, for Sub-Saharan Africa, you have issues of of uh, transparency um, and sort of partial deals to start to get some uh, success and momentum. Um, but a final point, which may seem obvious, but what wasn't as we sort of use what I'll call identity politics here to drive the choice, the person really has to believe in open markets. Um, you know, so Pascal can't say this, but I will. But, you know, after working with Brazil for a number of years, I don't think I would have put as a priority, you know, a representative economy that basically always tried to drag down the system and represented sort of the uh, Geneva ambassador's approach on that. That's not going to be somebody who's going to address this agenda. Um, and then the last point would be, I did this a little bit uh, at the World Bank and, and in other jobs uh, within the national government. If somebody is starting to get to the point where the job may come together, I would advise trying to sort of gently exceed, try to suggest some acceptance of some of the major parties, some room to try to push the agenda. And as Pascal knows, the director general's role is a much more limited role in the WTO environment than, say, a World Bank president or an IMF MD. Um, depending on changes in government in the United States, you might get some room to sort of do this as well. But it's best when you get appointed to have some idea of what you would like to do and some sense of the coalitions you could build to sort of uh, regain momentum. Um, I have to say, uh, having outlined this, uh, I'm not very sanguine. I think this is going to be difficult, but the stakes are so high for the reasons that we've discussed. I would certainly uh, make that effort. Mm, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, you know, it is true that uh, the stakes are, are so high that I really hope that all those candidates out there are, are listening to us here at uh, Trade Wins uh, because you've laid out, I think, uh, not only a clear agenda, but uh, most importantly, also how you know how to go uh, about it. Um, now, I I want to keep a few minutes at the end because I'd like to hear a little bit uh, from from both of you on your respective books. But there are um, a number of questions from our audience around one topic. There are, there are many questions, and I appreciate um, uh, all of you posting them. Uh, but a number of them relate to the issue of um, of uh, state capitalism. Uh, to the point, they also refer uh, to the issue of um, uh, all the uh, state aid that is taking place right now uh, in the context of uh, COVID-19. Um, and uh, a couple of participants, so here we have uh, Sotetsi Makong, who basically asked, on trade distortion made possible by fiscal responses to COVID-19, uh, can DG Lamy elaborate more the degree of distortions he foresees and their impact on economic relation between major partners. Uh, Hector Torres asked how and where to coordinate the unwinding of the US $15 trillion of fiscal support. Uh, Peter Rushish also refers to this topic about the EU white paper on foreign subsidies that came out today. So a lot of concern on, uh, on the part of our audience on a topic that both of you have mentioned, which is how is it that we are going to deal with this 
uh, huge amounts of money that have been injected in domestic economies, rightly so, to keep them, uh, you know, to keep them alive in the context of COVID-19 to support um, uh, firms and households. Uh, but the question is, how, how are we going to deal with this issue to make sure that we are able to come more to sort of this level playing field? And I think you've mentioned a few things, but I just would like to give you the floor for a couple of minutes uh, before I turn over uh, to your to your books. Uh, um, so, uh, Pascal, you'd like to uh, say a couple of words on this? Yes, yes, Annabelle. Uh, I think there are, and that's exactly the structure of our discussion, and I think the interest of juxtaposition of our two uh, different uh, positions and experiences, even if, even if we work together a lot. There's a sort of pre-COVID issue, which is Chinese state capitalism. And then there is a post-COVID issue, uh, which is uh, the impact on trade of this huge amount of public and central bank monies coming uh, from uh, the sky. On the first one, the reality is that when China joined the WTO, A, it was a relatively small economic animal, and B, the view was that the terms of that deal, the spirit of that deal would be that China would little by little converge with the rest of global capitalism, not A change of political regime, but an economic evolution, which would be in uh, following the steps of Deng Xiaoping, who started uh, privatizing uh, the uh, Chinese economy. And roughly in 2008-2009, the Chinese economy had moved from 100% state-owned, which was full communism, uh, to 15% state-owned. And remember, at least in Europe, after the Second World War, we probably had 15% of our economy state-owned. But the view was, at the time, that that would shrink to something which would be around 5%, which is probably the average worldwide, of the part of your economy which is under the direct power of the state. This convergence was derailed by two main phenomena. First was the 08 crisis, where China had to pump a huge amount of economy, and they did it through the state-owned sector, which roughly doubled since 08. And second, the arrival of Xi Jinping, uh, who is a very different communist leader from his predecessors, who strongly believe that the reason why China succeeded in this amazing growth performance is because it, of its Chinese characteristics, i.e. the control of the party, which most of his predecessors would strongly nuance in saying, yes, we did great, but we also did great by importing quite a lot of Western global capitalist recipes. So the era of convergence is over. China will remain for the time to come a state capitalist country with 30% of its economy under state command. Convergence is over. The only possible solution is to organize coexistence. And that's a different game. How do you level the playing field in coexistence, not waiting for convergence? We Europeans know full well how to do that? You have to install strict disciplines on state aid, which is why Germany accepted <laughs> the common market in the 1950s. They only accepted with France, which was much more state-owned than Germany. They only accepted it under the condition that there would be strict rules on state aid, which would be administered by an independent body, which was the European Commission. Now, I'm not saying we should transform the world into a big EU. Uh, I know there's some way to go, but still, we have to recognize that as far as open trade is concerned, you have to discipline state subsidies. What the Chinese 
code now, and I'm happy they've invented this concept, even which, even if it's not very clear how they interpreted it, uh, competitive neutrality. Huh? This is Chinese language, competitive neutrality. We have to go in this direction. Yeah. And yeah. if not with existing WTO rules, which do not properly allow competitive neutrality, with a sort of what I call my coalition for open trade, a sort of understanding between these countries, sort of in a first stage gap-like understanding that we will not go in this direction. And then once trust is there, once China has realized that otherwise, if there's no multilateral rule, what the EU decided is deciding will multiply. India will do it, Brazil will do it, South Africa will do it, and China will be confronted with a set of weapons which are unilateral anti-subsidy weapons instead of, uh, of global civil. And by the way, the EU, the, the US led the way a long time ago with a sort of 301 uh, uh, legislation. So this is the way to go. I think, again, we should look for a period of stabilization Guys, we've had to do that for good reasons. We have to pump a lot of money in our economy. Let's agree on behaviors that will avoid this translating into a big trade distortion, not least because the victims of that will be developing countries. Who has the capacity for these enormous bazookas? Only countries who can borrow on markets. And who are these countries? They are the ones with strong currencies. And who are the countries with strong currencies? They are the northern and the rich countries. So we are back to a sort of big north-south problem. And I think it will be pretty clear pretty soon that this needs to be addressed. This will definitely be uh, a one very important topic of a whole episode of Trade Winds, because you're right, uh, Pascal, this has many different angles and really needs to be uh, tackled. Uh, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the liberty to go a couple of minutes before our witching hour, uh, to, because I would like to hear from Bob as well on his forthcoming uh, book, uh, which seems to be very timely and very relevant. Uh, so, Bob, let me, let me uh, give you the floor uh, to comment on America and the World, a History of U.S. Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Well, th thank you, Annabelle. Uh, <clears throat> so, as the title suggests, it's much, much broader than trade. Um, and, for example, Pascal mentioned the Hamiltonian monument that people are discussing in Europe. Uh, I have a chapter on Hamilton, uh, but it, it, and the focus is um, how he saw good credit as a key dimension of national power building the system. But then I also relate it to the types of foreign policy that he needed to have, not the least of which Many Americans are unaware that about 90 to 95% of the revenues at that time came from tariffs. Um, and it was not a high tariff regime, but the point was if you were going to have conflicts with Britain and France and you cut off your trade, you were going to not be able to pay the interest on your debt. Um, but uh, the method of the book is a series of stories. And I focus on people and particular events where I try to talk about the ideas, uh, I assess the diplomacy, I give some of my, my own kind of views about it. But trade is an important theme. And uh, one of the traditions that I draw out is trade in U.S. foreign policy being much more than a matter of economic efficiency. Um, from the very start of the founding of the United States, you see this in quotes from John Adams talking about a Protestant revolution, a reformation, and Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. They saw that they were trying to offer an alternative international model to empires, colonies, mercantilism. And as part of that, it was expanding the role for private parties. So this opens up the world of what today would be called transnational actors. Now, in the case of U.S. trade policy history, as Doug Irwin, who's written a massive book on this, uh, uh, the, the history mentioned, you had sort of a revenue period, you had sort of a restriction, and you had a reciprocity period. And a key theme is the role of Congress in the executive, which Pascal knows well, having visited members of Congress as often as he visited uh, me. And then there was the key development of the 1934 Reciprocal Trade Act after Smoot-Hawley, which started the whole negotiating process. 
One little point is how difficult trade politics have always been in the United States. So sometimes you see the discussion today or in recent years who say, oh, well, this is because the world has changed. In 1947, uh, when the GATT was just being put together, Will Clayton, who was the US negotiator, this was 23 uh, states trying to come together, had to return from Geneva to have a meeting with President Truman and the Secretary of Agriculture because the Congress was about ready to pass a wool tariff, an increase in the tariff of wool that would have led the Australians to leave, the British and the Commonwealth countries would have left. The Europeans thought, well, if Britain wasn't part of it, there was not much play. And so Truman gives Will Clayton and the Secretary of Agriculture 15 minutes each. Secretary of Agriculture makes arguments that I've certainly heard, you'll see in the paper, which is, well, the 48 elections coming up, you could lose up to seven or eight states, and it doesn't matter for international negotiations anyway. And Clayton made the plea to let us try to start an international trading system to have recovery after World War II. Uh, Truman, to his credit, vetoed the bill and gave the authority to do a 25% negotiation in the wool tariff. So this is 1947. So <clears throat> it's a good example of what I'm trying to do more broadly in the book, which is whether it's trade or alliances or international law or other topics, to try to use stories to, to humanize it. But I do believe, and this is a, sort of a little bit of a contrarian view in the U.S., um, that trade is a component of the larger engagement of the US with the world beyond what you've seen uh, in recent decades, which is sort of the, the kind of over-reliance on the military. Well, Bob, that sounds very interesting. And I certainly look forward uh, to the book next uh, August. So I want to also uh, give Pascal um, a couple of minutes to refer to his book, which I already have, and I already uh, read because it came out in, in December, I believe. Uh, called Strange New World Geoeconomics versus Geopolitics. Uh, so Pascal, your, your last word on, on the book, please. Well, first, this book uh, is a co-written book uh, with somebody uh, with whom uh, I do not always agree. And we believe that one of the charms of this book is that it's a bit uh, stereophony. Uh, Nicole Gesotto, who's my co-writer, is one of the best French geopoliticians. I meant to be a sort of expert in geoeconomics. She holds the view that geopolitics will always trump geoeconomics because they are what they are. This is the nations that drive this planet and they are sovereign and the Westphalian system will remain forever. I have a different view uh, and I believe uh, Geoeconomies can be a big contributor to peace and security uh, because of the sort of interdependence it brings. And if I have a good reason to believe that while Trump and Xi Jinping are exchanging what sometimes are insults, the reason why I don't think there's going to be a war is because of geoeconomics and not just geopolitics. So it's a dialogue uh, where I have to recognize, uh, unfortunately, that recently uh, she scored a few points <laughs> and that we probably are in a world uh, where uh, geopolitics uh, are probably a bit more important than geoeconomics. And what happened with the COVID crisis, uh, I think, uh, puts a bit more water <laughs> to her own meal than to mine. I don't despair. I think this is a tough period to go through. But I still believe that, and that's what Bob said in his initial remarks, opening trade has, of course, economic welfare benefits under some conditions which are not all there, and which I explained in the book I published when I recovered my freedom of speech when I left WTO, which is called the Geneva Consensus. It's not a magic wand, but that's the way to go under some conditions. Still, still, it has many other benefits, and I think we have, be, we have to be conscious of these many other benefits. Uh, and those of us who push for open trade don't do it only for pure mercantilist trade-off, comparative advantage, Ricardo Schumpeterian satisfactions. We do it because we believe this is good for the people and they understand a bit of each other. And I think, whereas I would be quite pessimistic on the next, let's say, five years, 
which is why we will need quite a lot of energy to restabilize the system, which has been deeply destabilized by this crisis. I still believe it's the way to go. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, to both of you. I have one final question that I hope we'll have a one word answers to both of you, which is, uh, uh, will you join us uh, at the next episode of Trade Wins uh, to continue our discussions on so many important topics that you put on the table? <laughs> so I want to hear it. Yes. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Yes. Thank you. It will be, be a pleasure. All right. Thank you both very much. This has been a wonderful uh, session full of, uh, of many rich ideas. Uh, and I think our, our, what our viewers are uh, going to be uh, also very grateful to, um, to both of you. I also would like to thank our audience. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, thank you for your comments and suggestions. Uh, and please come back in the future and also bring your, uh, your colleagues and friends. Um, thanks to all my colleagues at the Peterson Institute who uh, made Trade Wins uh, happen. Uh, and stay tuned for our next uh, episode of uh, Trade Wins uh, next July 1st uh, with another interesting dialogue, I hope, on the future of global trade. Thank you very much. <laughs>